Marty Wildey is a state representative. He represents House District 11. That's a piece of Eugene, then goes up to Sweet Home, Lebanon, some of Lynn County. Earlier this month, I guess actually, excuse me, it was the end of June, the legislature put forth at a special session, I call it the special, special session. It's the first special session, they're going to have another one. And they put forth six bills. Four and a half of them happened. All the major amendments essentially weakened the bills. But they passed some bills. One of the big bills they didn't pass was called Qualified Immunity. Marty Wildey is working on that now. We're going to talk to him about it. Representative, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me on, Jefferson. So first of all, correct me on or, or amplify helping people understand the geographic reach of your district. <laughs> well, I call it the Kalapuya District in honor of the uh, tribe who lived there. But it goes, uh, I say, from the University of Oregon down to Creswell, around Springfield, and all the way up into Lynn County to the outskirts of Lebanon and Sweet Home. Why does it dodge Springfield? Is it because you didn't have to want to go there? What's going on? Why does it dodge Springfield? <laughs> no, I love Springfield. Uh, no, it's, uh, it has to do with uh, communities of interest. Uh, when we do redistricting, we try to find communities of interest. So John Lyman, and You weren't interested in, in Springfield. That's not cool, man. <laughs> Well, maybe John was John was more interested in it because he got all of Springfield, and I got everything that was left over in the Senate district. Uh, but it's a it's a uh, it's a district with a lot of economic diversity, with a lot of different lifestyles, and so uh, I grew up out in uh, Triangle Lake, and uh, now I live in town, and I enjoy uh, you know representing uh, I guess both halves of my life, uh, both people in the city and uh, folks out in the country. So I and like so, and so John is John Lively. John Lively represents right. Springfield. Did I get that right? Yes. Yep. All right. And he's a Republican. You're a Democrat. Am I getting that right? No, no, no. He's a Democrat. He's a Democrat. Excuse me. Why do I think John Lively was a, was a Republican? That's not fair of me. That's not nice. He's so lively. He's the former mayor of Springfield, so I'll, I'll have to give him primacy in Springfield. And he's inter- <laughs> and he's interested in Springfield. He represented it. We'll we'll edit that piece out for the uh, uh, for the podcast after the fact that I didn't know it. Political party. <laughs> I, I, I was. No, imp- I, I think I I should get some credit that I knew who the state representative in, in Springfield was. So I should get some. Credit yeah. No, that. I'm impressed. I'm impressed. All right. There's so, 60 of us. Hard to keep track. So what are you wrestling with right now? What's the First of all, let's not let's set aside qualified immunity, which I want to get to in a minute. But even just what you're wrestling with as representing your district in the time of a global pandemic, in a time of national, uh, a national uprising has been my favorite descriptor. Uh, what is that meaning for your day to day? How's that for your family? How's that for your district? Uh, I think the hardest part is not being able to communicate in person as, as much. Uh, I knocked on, when I first ran, I knocked on 11,500 doors um, uh, in my first run for office, and uh, I really miss that. It's uh, not as easy to get out and, and go to public events and uh, chat with people and catch them that way. So I spend a lot of time on the phone, as I am with you, uh, trying to, to hear from people. And, uh, you know, that's that's uh, that's one of the biggest challenges. And I think for my district, um, you know, it, it's uh, a lot of uncertainty. I have both Lane Community College and the University of Oregon, so there's a lot of uncertainty as to what's going to happen in the fall. Um, and then um, in the rural parts of my district, I have uh, a lot of agriculture, and they have a lot of questions as well. The markets are disrupted by this, and so we're just trying to get everybody through. What I, I tried to tell folks is, you know, this is likely to take another six to nine months before it's all resolved, um, but then it will be. And so we just need to keep an eye on the long game and keeping everybody um, 
working together to keep everyone healthy and safe for that time. What's your silver lining? You know, um, hmm. I, I think how much uh, the work that's been done shows how much we do care about each other. Uh, we created entirely new programs just because certain people didn't qualify for unemployment insurance because we wanted to make sure they got through all this. Um, I think it's really a silver lining when we see, you know, people focus on the masks and, and you know, the controversy around it. But what I see is people primarily wearing them um, because they care about each other. And we know the masks do more to protect other people than they do to protect you. So that's a, a wonderful expression of altruism, I think. And um, so I think those are silver linings. Let's talk about police accountability, the special session that just happened. Is it unfair for me to describe the major amendments that were made to the bills as generally speaking, and I might even say universally speaking, weakening the bills, at least from a perform a reformers, haha, performers, at least from a reformer standpoint? Uh, yeah, I think they were, um, they were weakened a bit to achieve consensus on it. I, we did, I think, receive Republican votes on all of them. Uh, in fact, uh, I think uh, some of them were unanimous or close to it. Um, so I think in the context of the time available, um, that was a, a good goal. But I think we all recognize that they were just a first step and that we want to continue this conversation. And uh, I want to thank Senator Manning and Representative Bynum for letting me work on this project. The uh, and Janelle Bynum, actually, when I started, I'm trying to ask the question, what's your silver lining that was based on the conversation that we had with Representative Janelle Bynum, who is running the uh, operative committee in the State House, James Manning, uh, another member of the POC caucus in the legislature. Excuse me, excuse me, no, because he's in the State Senate, but he is running the uh, he, he is running the uh, respective committee on the Senate side. When uh, describe for us the dynamic of the discussion, was it mostly to get Republican votes? Was it to get the Coastal Caucus? Was it just because there are people within leadership who have relationships with? Uh, district attorneys. I mean, district attorneys and and county sheriffs and chiefs of police have real influence with lots of legislators around the state, right? I'm not just talking about Portland, Multnomah County, but each, you know, every sheriff, every police chief, every district attorney can reach their state legislator. Yeah, I don't know uh, that I would view it in terms of political wrangling as much as um, appreciating that there are some complexities um, in these issues. Um, I mean, I don't like tear gas much, but there are times when it's the least worst option um, and trying to find the right place for those. I think um, So you don't think you don't think political influence had anything to do with the decisions. I, I, I will say starting out representative, it's hard for me to buy that. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that. No uh, influence. I would say I think we there was a lot of collaboration to find language that would work for everybody. Um, you know, and we have. Boy, uh, at least uh, three police officers I can think of, or former police officers I can think of off the top of my head, two of whom were chiefs of police, um, Carla Peluso and Ron Noble, and then uh, Chris Gorsuch was one as well. So, um, you know, they've, they've got a, a perspective in terms of um, what it's like on the ground and helping the rest of us understand that. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a uh, diverse legislature in terms of, experience and so I think we do try to listen to each other um, now uh, clearly interests on the right were less interested in changing the status quo 
in drastic ways than interest on the left. But um, I think we got some important work done, and I think we all recognize it's just the first step. Uh, and what, so what was the most important work? What was the most important work that got done? Um, from my perspective, I would say it was the duty to report misconduct um, by other officers. Um, what we see is um, police officers, um, most of whom are, are uh, take the, the the right view of policing, um, but operating in a culture that. Um, did not encourage reporting when people didn't uh, reach those professional standards, when people didn't abide by it. I, I look at it this way, uh, Jefferson. Um, is the primary purpose of the police to protect the public or is it to control the public? And I hope you and I and everybody listening to this believe that their job is to protect the public, um, that they should protect and serve, as we traditionally say. And I think, uh, I, I would say we all um, subscribe to that view, at least everybody on both sides now that I've talked to, and so the question then becomes, in that context, you know, what can we do to uh, policy-wise to keep the police closer to that mission, um, and honestly, to frankly get rid of officers who don't subscribe to that view, um, because that's the fundamental uh, philosophy of policing in our country: is that the police are there to protect the public. You said it was a first step, and this is I find an interesting piece of the dynamic because that was one of the big. Uh, consensus comments from uh, House leadership, from the People of Color Caucus in the House, from uh, I think Senator James Manning said about exactly the same thing. I, said, I think Senator Lou Frederick, who's also working on these issues, been working on it for a long time, is, I think said almost exactly the same thing. It's the first step, it's the first step. And at some level, it is absolutely accurate because there already is a commitment from the uh, from legislation of the governor to take another crack at it, and y'all are going to be in I think you're in hearings this week and next week to get ready for another special session. And another, I also, when I hear it, I have heard it, I've said it before, and it was like, well, in the hopes that it's another, you know, that it's the first step, in the hopes that somebody later, either the same somebodies or some different somebodies, will do something even better in the future. But maybe when the future comes, the landscape will have changed. Maybe there isn't as much, there won't be as much fervor on the streets. Maybe attention among progressive folks will have moved on to climate change, which is another big issue, or wealth disparities, or what's you know the implementation of a important housing plan. What is the fierce urgency of now you feel versus the uh, wisdom of incremental change, iteration, and learning from what you do along the way? I think. Obviously, there is a fierce urgency, and we see that on the streets every night um, to, to make some changes um, and to, again, refocus the police on protection as opposed to control. Um, you know, for me, I guess that's best. Um, a good example of that is, you know, when there's a confrontation between the police and uh, people who are protesting, uh, you know, do the police view you know, any crimes that are happening as the problem, or do they view the protest itself as the problem? And when I see police chasing down protesters, when I see them disrupt, uh, attempting to disrupt a protest as opposed to attempting to uh, hold up, you know, people who are committing crimes accountable, that tells me the police are being used as an instrument of control, not an instrument of protection. So um, that's really an important thing to change and to change quickly. And I appreciate the work they're doing. I, I 
I think the goal of the meetings over the next two weeks is to take uh, additional steps as soon as we can. Uh, I think that's likely to be in another special session. Um, I think over the longer term, um, there are you know more complex issues and more subtlety and nuance that we may want to embrace. And my testimony today to the committee will will be essentially that, that there are things that we can do right now to address qualified immunity. Um, and then there are things we should consider over the longer term. You know, how can we, what I want to do right now is make sure we have um, just compensation for people who are injured by the police. I think that's critically important. Uh, over the longer term, we need to think about how that system will, you know, um, circle back to police training uh, and police culture and sort of build those connections in so that we're, you know, fixing the whole system, not just um, the end result. So I guess that's the way I view it is work we can do right away and then work we're going to do uh, but may take longer to have conversations. And you're testifying today before the committee. That's Is it a joint committee at this point or is it just the House joint committee? joint committee, yes. Before the joint committee on what, police accountability and transparency, what are we calling it? Uh, let's see. They call it the Joint Committee on Transparent Policing and Use of Force Reform. And you're going to be pitching what? You're going to be pitching a reform to qualified immunity. Is that about right? Right. Well, and let's put it this way. Um, when we talk about compensating people from injuries from the police, if you view the role of the police as to control the public, it doesn't really make a lot of sense, does it? But if you view the role of the police as protecting the public, it absolutely makes sense that we would want to make sure that people are compensated. And since that is the view that I represent, uh, and I believe uh, everybody in the legislature does as well, the question then is, is how we are compensating people fair? And I think the answer with qualified immunity is no. And, you know, if you don't mind, I'll give you a, a, a few quick examples. Yeah, do it. And I want to reset real quick. You're listening to X-Ray. I'm Jefferson Smith. We're talking to Representative Marty Wilde, uh, who represents uh, Eugene, getting up to Crestwell Sweet Home, uh, some of Lebanon. The topic is police reforms, police accountability, police transparency, and the more specific topic, the policy proposal, is qualified immunity. So, yeah, give us some examples. Sure. So here are three examples where compensation was denied to people under um, qualified immunity. Um, so an officer decided to release a police dog to attack the surrendering suspect who was sitting with his arms raised. Uh, found qualified immunity, no liability. An officer uh, shot a child while intending to shoot a non-threatening dog near the child and ended up shooting into a group of children and injuring a child. No liability. A corrections officer decided to pepper spray an inmate, which he admitted was for no reason whatsoever. That, again, denied under qualified immunity. So clearly those are examples where I think, well, geez, that's not, um, that's not fair. Those folks are clearly uh, victims of police violence, and what can we do to compensate them? Um, so you know, the, the fundamental problem we're running into is it's a federal um, principle, right? It applies in federal court. So we can't control what the federal government does. We sincerely hope that Congress fixes it. Um, or the Supreme Court. But until then, we want to make sure that our courts are fair uh, and that qualified immunity does not apply uh, in our courts, that kind of conduct. So let's again just say what qualified immunity is. It essentially means what? That a police officer can't get sued for something they do that is borderline within the line of duty? Uh, I guess that's one way of thinking about it. Um, it, it, it. It started off as more or less that, that um, a police officer could only get sued if they violated a clearly established statutory or constitutional right. 
benefit of the doubt standard. Well, if no reasonable person would know that the police weren't supposed to do that, then how are we supposed to hold that police officer accountable? But when we think of where it's gone, I mean, I think we would all agree you, you shouldn't pepper spray people for no reason. You shouldn't release a dog on somebody who's surrendering, uh, and you certainly shouldn't shoot children uh, when there's no uh, risk to anything around, anything around them. So that doctrine has been twisted so much that it's you know, time to, to change it, and, and we can. It was a, a court-created doctrine, but it can be changed by statute. Congress could change it tomorrow if they wanted, um, and we certainly want to do what we can to, uh, to fix it in, in state court. And now that means putting it before the legislature. Mm-hmm. What are the policy arguments against changing qualified immunity? I think uh, it depends on how you change it. Um, there's a lot of concern about making police officers individually financially liable. Um, I, I appreciate that you know, we all want to know what we're going to be responsible for. Um, I think the counter to that is uh, we want people to think twice about using force. Um, uh, the other counter-arguments are sort of you can't expect every police officer to be a lawyer. I think the counter to that is, you know, uh, the first reforms we're looking at are just reforms to the current system in state court, which is where the employer is, is primarily held liable. Uh, we may get to a point with officers where we're thinking about how to make sure that they understand um, but they need to be careful about these decisions. And now whether that's making them personally liable for some small amount or whether that's um, having you know, decisions of courts reported back to their licensing agency, those are different ways of getting at that. Uh, my, so guess is, a, my guess is you'll hear the same, arg- maybe you already have heard the same arguments that are similar arguments that we hear about medical malpractice. One right. is that officers will practice defensive medicine Right, it'll be harder for them to do their job, and they might not do their job as well because they're afraid of getting sued. They won't go out and do the dangerous thing. They won't go put themselves in harm's way because they're going to be worried they might do the wrong thing and get sued. And the second thing would be that it might chill people from becoming police officers. They would be nervous about putting them in, themselves in the context where not only they might be at some risk themselves physically but also financially. Uh, do you hear those critiques, and what are your responses to them? I certainly do hear those critiques. Uh, I think the first steps we're looking at would not hold them personally responsible. What I would say about medical malpractice, for instance, is that doctors are personally liable, and if there's a judgment over $30,000, they are reported to the National Practitioners Data Bank. Um, So, uh, you know, is there defensive medicine that occurs because of those risks? Yes. Uh, But uh, do we want uh, doctors operating without any regard for risk? No, we want them to consider risk, um, very much so. Uh, now we don't want them to practice defensive medicine. Um, for officers, it's much the same in the field. I mean, what, a lot of these decisions come down to, for officers, do I put somebody's life at risk or injury at risk to defend property? Um, and right now they're allowed to use non-deadly force to protect property. Um, and I think we want to have them making better decisions about when they should do that. Um, that was really what the tear gas and uh, bill was all about, as well as the chokehold bill was. You know, but chokeholds uh, are deadly force and should only be used in deadly force uh, situations. When you talk about tear gas, you are putting people's lives at risk. You know, in an era when people are you know compromised in their respiratory functioning, um, is that something you want to do just to defend property? Um, 
you know, in terms of policing, uh, I mean, <laughs> I'm honored to work with Senator Manning, who uh, was in the military, as I've been, um, and was a police officer. And, you know, it's not a, a zero-risk uh, profession. Um, you know, that, 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 that risk is shared. Um, there's a reason certain jobs you take an oath uh, when you start them, and that's because you are expected to put the interests of other people before yours. Um, so it's, that's a tough thing, but that's the fundamental um, deal we make is, you know, if you are going to protect the public, that honestly means you're going to take some risks. Um, risks I take in my military duty, risks James took in military duty and as a correction officer and as a law enforcement officer. If that's not something you're willing to do, maybe you're not in the right profession um, because the job is to protect and to serve. Um, and that's, you know, that's what we want them thinking about. Am I protecting and serving? We're talking to Representative Marty Wildey from Eugene and beyond. We're also talking about qualified immunity. Thank you for spending the time, Representative. What's the political path? Can you get this done in the next special okay. session? Can you get the support of uh, members of the House and the Senate and get the governor to sign it? <laughs> yeah, uh, well, uh, listen to my testimony at, at 1030 today. Uh, yes, I think there are things we can do. Um, I think uh, certainly we should make a statement that qualified immunity should not apply uh, in law enforcement cases in our state courts. I think that's, uh, that the doctrine has been taken too far, and if we want to replace it with something that's clear, we absolutely should. Uh, but we definitely want to say it doesn't apply in state courts. And then we have to consider uh, fair compensation in, in our state courts. Uh, I do want to bring up some of the problems we have with recovery limits. Um, you know, the maximum recovery for all damages for personal injury in state courts is $769,000. That may sound a lot like a lot to you and me, but consider that there was a case in the Washington County shooting where the jury believed uh, this man who was shot in his own yard by police officers who did not identify themselves, um, you know, they thought his injuries were worth $7 million, and that was reduced to just over $1 million because of those caps. So I think it's important that we change that as well because, um, you know, it, it's important that people receive fair compensation for their injuries. Um, so uh, that's, uh, I think what we can get done uh, is at least that. We could certainly make it fairer to victims um, so that they can receive a fuller recovery, uh, and we can certainly say we don't want this in our state courts. Over the long term, I think there are some important steps in terms of police training. Uh, I think there are some important steps in terms of you know, as we've now established a statewide data bank for police misconduct, making sure that when there is a settlement or a judgment uh, involving an officer's conduct, that the uh, DPSSC considers that in light of their license um, as a peace officer. Um, not saying that every mistake should result in somebody losing their license, but I definitely think that DPSSC should consider it when there is an incident of excessive force. So, Representative Wildey, thank you so much for spending the time this morning. Really appreciate you, and thanks for your service. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Carson. Have a good day. Be well.